0: Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and we are going to talk about science. Um, As always, you can find me on Facebook throughout the week, and you can listen to this and other episodes as podcasts um, on iTunes, Stitcher, and other fine purveyors of podcasting. Um, And so i I realize that you probably don't necessarily want to hear about all of the lectures and things that are going on. I thought I'd give it a try, but um, I think I'm just going to start linking to a list on the Facebook page. So if you want to go there, um, I'll try and do that tonight or tomorrow morning at the latest. And um, so I will try and find things in in the valley that are happening that are things that would be of interest. Okay. Um, though I will note one thing, which is of course that nerd night is coming up on uh Friday on I'm sorry, on Monday the twelfth, and that is at seven PM at the Deuce in Northampton and they are friends at the station, so um they uh again, neither talk is particularly science based, but it's still a lot of fun to go to at Night and hear people talk about the things that they know about, um, and it's just a great time usually. So uh, there's going to be a talk on heist movies, and then there's going to be a discussion of how social media and things like Ask Me Anything can go uh, terrible and uh, end up just not being a good time at all for anyone involved. So um, a little bit of social engineering there. Uh, So definitely at least skirting uh, science. Okay, so we are going to talk about some medical stuff first. And then um, at the end, or on the second half, we're going to switch over to archaeology tonight. That's just kind of how things uh, sort of sorted themselves this week in my uh, collection of stories So the first story is about um, a report of five children who have had customized ear reconstruction using lab-grown cartilage that was then infused with cells uh, from the children themselves and grown on 3D printed molds. So these children basically had a um, disorder where generally one ear develops properly, but the other ear kind of develops as just a couple of little nodules. Um, It really does not develop pretty much at all. And so it's very cosmetically, uh, you know, it doesn't match the other ear at all. But uh, it is nice that they do have generally one ear that is normally developed. So it's easier for the for the researchers to then switch over and be able to create a scaffold that will then as closely as possibly match the ear that is uh, normal. And so the children were between the ages of six and 10. And um, so it's called, uh, the malformation is called microtia. And um, it doesn't affect the inner ear at all. It's just the cartilage and skin of the external ear. And so uh, the researchers took cartilage samples from the children, uh, harvested um, chondrocytes, which are the cartilage-forming cells of the tissue, and then expanded them, grew them on a mold that was modeled after a uh, CAT scan of, again, the children's normal ear. And so the tissue was then implanted under a skin flap and basically, from there, they created a new ear, and so that is something that has been done uh, for centuries. Actually, is that sort of thing of taking skin flaps and creating new um, structures. So, for instance, uh, people who had to have um, who had issues with their nose, often uh, they would be uh, someone would cut a flap of skin from the forehead in order to pull it down and create a new nose and things like that. So that's a very ancient technique, but this is a very modern technique of using basically 3D printed scaffolds that have implanted um, cells in them that are then uh, placed underneath that skin flap. And so the process did take several months uh, but the first child, uh, who was followed for two and a half years, has uh, reported that they are happy with the results, and they have achieved satisfactory aesthetical outcome with mature cartilage formation. And now, the results are not perfectly matched to the normal ear. Uh, for instance, they didn't actually want to take off any of the um, existing uh Parts of the ear that had developed, so some of them do have some nodules uh, still showing, but they are considerably closer to what the children would have had had they grown both ears normally and also will help them with things like their hearing um, because obviously your external ears do help you in order to uh, discover where sounds are coming from and things like that, so it's very good to have an ear that is as close to normal as possible. The delivery of shaped cartilage for the reconstruction of microtia has been a goal of the tissue engineering community for more than two decades, Lawrence Bonassar of Cornell University told CNN. This work clearly shows tissue engineering approaches for reconstruction of the ear and other cartilaginous tissues will become a clinical reality very soon. Now, previously, ears grown on the backs of mice have been used uh, to give patients new ear tissue, but this is the first time where you're doing it um, just by inserting that scaffolding underneath the existing tissue of um, the patient. Now, of course, there is an issue still with this. Um, it sounds very space age and amazing, but uh, if you think about it, it is uh, kind of a slow and um, kind of a bespoke uh, kind of um, procedure. And so the main issue is that this sort of tissue growth and replacement is very personalized. Um, And so the personalized nature of these systems is something that is a limiting factor. And also, obviously, um, it depends on the regulatory uh, controls that are in place. So this was, I believe, done in um, China. Um, I forgot to write that down. I'm sorry. Um, And so it depends on where you are, um, whether or not this kind of um, replacement therapy is actually uh, being done and has been approved for human trials at this point. Um, But there is definitely good work being done in the field of replacement tissue using 3D printing and uh, personalized cell lines. So that is very exciting. Um, There is a lot of work to be done in this sort of not only constructive, but reconstructive surgery to give people back what they've lost and also to give people um, like these children who developed improperly to give them the best chance at um, having sort of normal tissue. So it's very, very cool. And it is definitely one of those we are actually living in the future kind of things. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, you look around and you say, weren't weren't we supposed to be living in the future by now? And we're really not. But this is pretty cool that you can sort of 3D print an ear for a child and give them uh, what is almost a completely normal year from something that was once just a couple of, uh, sort of nubs, uh, on the side of their face. Okay. So let's stay in the realm of restorative medicine, uh, for a moment, uh, restorative in the sense of things that have been lost because, uh, It's not necessarily a story that I'm particularly interested in, um, but it is one which has been making the rounds recently on Facebook with a very uh, sort of deceptive uh, headline splash and really not explaining very well what the story is about. So you may have seen on Facebook or elsewhere headlines that screamed things like can McDonald's french fries cure baldness or McDonald's french fries might hold a cure for baldness Now of course if you've spent any time really on the internet especially on skeptical sites you will know right away that the answer is no of course not <laughs> They cannot cure anything. They are French fries. Um, The only thing I can do is uh, give you momentary pleasure and then potentially regret later on. (laughs) Um, And a small amount of calories and fat for uh, burning and uh, doing your daily uh, things that you need to do. That's about it. Uh, But So why? Why did these uh, headlines suddenly show up? Well, of course, it's one of those situations where somebody read a a study or press release about a study, saw a particular uh, word, googled that word, found out that it's used in McDonald's french fry, uh, oil, and Bob's your uncle. There we go. Um, So Let's talk about what it really means. So, researchers at the Yokohama National University found that a chemical, which is indeed used in frying oil um, for McDonald's French fries, it's used as an anti-foaming agent. So, basically, when you put the fries in the oil, you don't want the oil to go everywhere. So, this particular uh, chemical, which is called dimethyl poly um, siloxane, is used. Uh, to help keep that from splashing up and foaming and things like that. Um, And, you know, we can have a whole discussion about whether or not something uh, that is basically a silicone uh, derivative used in oil that people are eating, you know, I mean, it's perfectly fine. It's obviously uh, food safe, but it is, you know, I'm sure that some people will be a little bit creeped out by the fact that they use this, but, you know, I mean, it's not it's not a big deal. Just because it has a long polysyllabic name doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. Um, And so it also has other uses. And so what they did was they used the dimethyl polysiloxane as a growth medium, the bottom layer of a growth medium for culturing culturing, uh, (laughs) follicles hair follicles, uh, which they then transplanted onto mice and the follicles then continued to grow hair. Um, and so this is actually a pretty big deal. If you care about hair loss, which I don't, um, I like bald men. I'm perfectly cool with baldness. Um, so, you know, uh, sort of don't, I am obviously uh kind of anti, uh, Um, fashion uh, requirements of both men and women. I think that you should do uh, whatever you want and shouldn't have to worry if you're going bald. Um, But obviously, many people do. And if they want to do something about it, that's fine with me. Uh, That's definitely their prerogative. Um, And so obviously, this has been one of those sort of Things that people have wanted to work on. Of course, that's probably my my main issue is that um, I think that given the fact that there is a very, very finite amount of research dollars available, uh, wasting money, in my personal opinion, on developing ways to combat baldness is not really, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the best use of money. But anyways, they continue to do it because it is a moneymaker maker. Uh, And so this is actually a breakthrough because they were able to culture thousands of hair follicle germs um, using this medium, uh, whereas current techniques mostly can create around 50 germs at a time. So if you think about how much easier it would be to use this new um, system to be able to create thousands of germs, because of course you need to have thousands of um individual cells implanted if you have um real pattern baldness, you know, fifty, a hundred you're gonna get that sort of old style uh hair club for men, hair plugs uh kind of look if you're only getting that small amount. Um And so, you know, this is good news for those who might be uh, going bald and worrying about that. Um, But again, it has absolutely nothing to do with how many French fries you consume. So uh, you can consume all the French fries or as few of the French fries as you want, and it will do nothing um, for your level of um, hair coverage. (laughs) Okay. So, um another health news study uh which has got people in a little bit of a tizzy. Um, not a ton of people. It's certainly not a big issue, but I think some people have been scared all of a sudden. Um, in the way that this often happens when um different uh hard different medical associations sort of create a new idea about what is or is not healthy. Uh, people who are suddenly on the other side of a line tend to freak out. Um, but I don't think that this is a huge, huge issue. And so people should definitely not be freaking out about it, especially considering what it's about, which is, of course, uh, high blood pressure. <laughs> Maybe not, of course, but um, so there was an announcement by the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology um, that they have decided that they are lowering the treatment threshold for high blood pressure from 140 over 90 to 130 over 80 Now, according to an article written by Christopher Labos, who is a doctor and writer for the excellent Office of Science and Society at uh, McGill University, they have a a website where they have some great um, articles and they try and sort of break down a lot of things for people so that you can actually understand what's going on in some of these science stories. Um, And so basically his take is that there's not all that much to worry about. Um, and so he talks in at length about the history of recording and manipulating blood pressure, Um, And basically talks about how it's kind of been a mess ever since someone first thought about doing it. Um, I'm definitely not going to rehash the entire article. I will link to it on the Facebook. Um, But the upshot is that there is evidence for a sweet spot for blood pressure, not too high, not too low, uh, between about 120 and 140. So the new guidelines simply chose to emphasize the middle of that range. Now, uh, one of the things he points out is that our idea of what was considered acceptable uh, has been steadily declining over the last 50 years. And so back in the days of Franklin Roosevelt, his 160 to 200 range was considered acceptable and his doctors didn't really have any problems with it. Of course, nowadays, we look back on that and think, huh, Because, of course, Roosevelt died of a stroke, um, which is one of the things that uh, can be caused by high blood pressure. Um, But, you know, it's still only been going down incrementally. In the 80s, 150 to 180 was considered mild hypertension that you didn't really have to do anything about. Um, And so why do we worry about it at all well again um it turns out that high blood pressure can cause stroke and also does lead to in many cases cardiovascular disease now of course again one of those sorts of in the old days they used to think that it was good for cardiovascular disease because if you had high blood pressure it was pushing the plaque out of your um Veins and uh arteries, and that 's not true. That is not how that worked um, <laughs> and so doctors used to believe that high blood pressure was caused by heart disease um, but of course, now we know the reverse now um it's really funny because. Doctors weren't even particularly enthused initially about the thought of tracking blood pressure. They really didn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, it turns out that insurance agencies were the first to notice the, context- the connection between high blood pressure and death. So, one of the few really good uses for health insurance companies, of which there are vanishingly few, um, are that the actuary tables that they have developed over the years have often shown researchers and uh, doctors, uh, basically, they have found links to things that would not have necessarily been noticed by other people. And so they noticed that link. They also noticed uh, the link between smoking and early death. Um, And so that is actually one of the interesting things is that uh, actuarians, as uh, deeply boring as that sounds to most people, they have actually found out some really interesting things that have then been, been used later on in uh, medical research. But, um, you know, the whole thing is basically kind of a tempest in a teapot. All they've done is say there's this range, but we're going to pick the middle ground instead of giving you the high end. Uh, So definitely you shouldn't worry about it too much. um, Because of course, as we all know, if you are worried about something, then uh, it might raise your blood pressure. (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, obviously, you know, if you have been listening with any regularity, that I have been kind of uh, talking pretty much every week about some aspect of the flu this season um, because it has been really bad and um, I really think that it's important for people to know and to keep being reminded and to remind others that the flu is not just a cold, that it is a big, important thing that you can actually die from and that thousands and thousands of people die from the flu every year. It's not a cold. Get your flu shot, please. Um, But it turns out that the flu is not the only problem out there at the moment. And so there is another virus out there that basically can mimic the flu, but Uh, is obviously not helped by the flu shot. So if you got your flu shot, but you still got sick, there's a chance that it actually wasn't influenza, but rather adenovirus. Now there is a vaccine for adenovirus, but unfortunately it's only available to the military currently. Unless you look for it, or you suspect it's circulating, or you are using diagnostic testing capabilities that can tell it apart, you are going to miss it, especially during flu season, says Adriana Coyone, PhD, an infectious disease specialist at the Lovelace Respiratory Research Institute in Albuquerque. We are seeing severe adult infections, That's a big deal, especially for a disease that by all means is vaccine preventable. But this vaccine is not licensed to be used in civilians. Now, there are actually 52 strains of adenovirus that can cause a variety of issues. But the vaccine is for uh, two of the most prevalent uh, strains that have the most um, similar symptoms to that of the flu. Now, the virus does rarely cause death, um, but it can lead to complications that can have lasting effects. It's most prevalent in enclosed communities such as colleges, summer camps, long-term care facilities, and of course, the armed forces. Uh, Because most clinicians aren't looking for it or testing for the Adenovirus, for adenovirus infections, the known cases may just be the tip of the iceberg. And so there might be other things out there that are happening that we don't even realize are being caused by the adenovirus. And um, so it's one of those things that uh, a lot of physicians and especially epidemiologists are advocating for us to track uh, more carefully, especially since adenoviruses are very hard to kill. They can last on plastic and metal surfaces for a month. And even some of the common disinfectants do not kill them, um, though chlorine is effective. And speaking of nasty pathogens, uh, apparently norovirus has already hit and is spreading amongst those at the Olympics. As of yesterday, there were 128 confirmed cases. And uh, norovirus is actually considered by some to basically be the perfect human pathogen. It hits quickly, spreads easily, and survives for several days outside of a host's body. These viruses possess essentially all of the attributes of an ideal infectious agent. Highly contagious, rapidly and prolifically shed, constantly evolving, evoking limited immunity, and only moderately v- Verland, allowing most of those infected to fully recover, therefore maintaining a large susceptible pool of hosts. Dr. Aaron Hall, an epidemiologist on the viral gastroenteritis team at the CDC, wrote in a 2012 editorial published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. And so norovirus is basically impossible to avoid once it reaches a population. The only saving grace is that it almost never causes death. Um, though you may wish for death while experiencing, uh, the worst of these symptoms. Um, having had the norovirus at least once, um, I can tell you that it is all sorts of not fun. Um, and, uh, it is one of those things that often, uh, attacks, uh, for instance, cruise ships, uh, there have been several very, very uh, public outbreaks of norovirus on cruise ships in the last couple of years. And it's just, it's a very nasty virus. And, um, you know, I'd love to give you sort of ideas of how to avoid it, but it's very, very hard to avoid. Um, basically, norovirus, you only need to get, um, I think it's like less than 20, uh virus particles in order to be infected and people are shedding thousands of them um, when they're infected. So it's, again, uh, very hard to avoid getting once you're around people who have it. So basically, um, if you want to avoid it, once you know somebody has it, just stay completely and utterly away from them and everything they've touched or gone near (laughs) until uh, several days later, at least. But again, you know, it's not going to cause death. It's just going to make you really, really unhappy for a couple of days. Um, Okay, so let's move slightly outside of the realm of actual medicine um, and talk about woodpeckers. (laughs) So woodpeckers have long been believed to be able to resist brain damage, uh, despite the fact that obviously they are repeatedly banging their heads uh, against trees to uh, be able to pull out the insects that live uh, beneath the tree bark. And so one of the things that they have is that their tongue actually is really long and it actually is wrapped around their brain in sort of a uh, protective, um, you know, it basically creates a sort of uh, shock absorber for the brain. And so for a long time, uh, people have thought that that gave them protection and used it to uh, model things um, for protecting people from damage to their brains. But new research from the Boston University School of Madison um, has kind of challenged this assumption somewhat. Um, And again, this is important because they've been long used as a model uh, when designing safety equipment for sports activities. Uh, So, you know, like football helmets, for instance. Um, We just had some sort of uh, football extravaganza recently, um, and I I do wonder about that because I have seen um, some of the information on um, CTEs, and it's it's scary, um, and so it's very uh, worrisome to look at this kind of research. But um, anyways, there have been all kinds of safety and technological advances in sports equipment based on the anatomical adaptations and biophysics of the woodpecker, assuming they don't get brain injury from pecking, said Dr. Peter Cummings, lead author on the study. The weird thing is nobody has ever looked at a woodpecker brain to see if there is any damage. So Cummings and his colleagues decided to do this, comparing downy woodpeckers to red-winged blackbirds who, you know, don't actually peck in that way and so don't have this brain um, concussion issue. And so they found that woodpecker brains have much more tau protein than the blackbird's brains. The basic cells of the brain are neurons, which are the cell bodies, and axons, which are telephone lines that communicate between the neurons, said co author Dr. George Farah. The tau protein wraps around the telephone lines. It gives them production and stability while still letting them remain flexible. In moderation, tau proteins can be helpful in stabilizing brain cells, but too much tau buildup can disrupt communication from one neuron to another. When the brain is damaged, tau collects and disrupts nerve function. Cognitive, emotional, and motor function can be compromised. Now, this sounds really bad and really worrisome that, you know, you have these woodpeckers that are full of this tau and it's much more than the red-winged blackbirds and uh, that has been linked to bad things in humans. Uh, But as I am always pointing out, uh, animal models and human models are often uh, very good to compare one another to, but they are not flawless. Um, And so uh, the researchers point out that woodpeckers have been developing and evolving on this planet for around 25 million years. Uh, The first true woodpeckers in the uh, fossil record come at about 25 million years ago. So it's kind of unlikely that if that excess tau was causing real problems, uh, that they would continue to develop in such a way that would maintain these excess levels of tau. And if you think about basic evolution, if you've got a brain damaged bird, uh, it's probably going to have a diminished capacity to do things like breed. And so if that would tend to lead to birds with less tau eventually uh, becoming more uh, prevalent. And yet there are all of these birds out there that do have these elevated levels of tau. So this might mean that it is not a sign of brain damage in woodpeckers, even though it can be in humans. And so again, one of the problems with this is that it means it might be harder to compare humans to woodpeckers when it comes to designing safety equipment. And again, I'm kind of honestly dubious that there is a truly safe way to play football and other sports that involve an excess of force applied to human brains um, because we're just, we're not equipped for that. We are not designed for that. We have not evolved to do things where our brain is constantly being um, concussed and constantly being um, sloshed around in our brain case and uh, smushed or uh, violently thrown against the inside of our skulls, uh, which is basically what happens when you're playing those sorts of sports. Um, But of course, more research will be needed. Okay. Okay. Let's take a break, and then we will talk about some archaeology stories. So hang on for just a moment.
1: Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship
0: is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, Lots of chiming,
1: jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking, healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs.
0: Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S.
1: When you get home at night and switch on the lights... Do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. Listen up, employers. Veterans can be a great asset to your company or organization. Veterans have gained skills in leadership, teamwork, and performance under pressure. Veterans have received the very best training in their fields and are never afraid to tackle a tough situation to accomplish the mission. If you are looking to hire a veteran, the Department of Labor can help you make it happen. You hire a veteran today, you won't be sorry
0: I Heart J Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest. J Rock, J Pop, J Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you.
1: Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives.
0: My name is Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives.
1: The Lilly
0: Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lillylibrary.org. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. Okay, we are back. And as I said, we are going to move on to archaeology now. And so the first thing I wanted to talk about is this amazing story um, about all of the incredible new um, ruins and um, buildings and even pyramids that have been discovered in northern Guatemala using LIDAR. Now, I've talked about LIDAR before, and it's basically magic. Um, One of the uh, researchers in one of the articles I read even literally did say that, um, that it's basically magic. Um, And so LIDAR stands for light detection and ranging, which is a very, very uh, unimaginative name for something that is, again, basically magic. (laughs) Um, So what it does is it uses laser pulses uh, fired from instrumentation, which is mounted on a plane and it is able to map areas of uh, the earth that are covered in dense vegetation of some sort. So jungle, forest, things like that. And basically uh, it is a magical deforestation tool that doesn't require any deforestation because it just, it ignores all of the vegetation and it just is able to show you all of the features that are underneath that vegetation. It's been a huge boon to archaeologists in recent years, especially when it comes to mapping ruins that have been hidden by jungles. This is a game changer, says Thomas Garrison, an archaeologist at Ithaca College who was involved in the study. As it flies, the laser pulses hundreds of thousands of times per second. And every time one of those lasers hits a point of resistance, it stops and sends back a measurement to the plane. And it's basically doing what previously took years to accomplish. Garrison and his colleagues took eight years to map less than a square mile at an archaeological site called El Zaltz. A LiDAR-equipped plane can cover 67 square miles in the matter of hours. Now, the information collected by the LiDAR system does take months to process and interpret, but it is stunning. And so uh, Garrison recalls seeing one of the first images of northern Guatemala. I saw this image and I said, the whole area is covered in Maya settlement. You won't believe it, he adds. And then once we got the actual data and saw the whole scope of it, we said, wow, we're going to be able to really do something with this. Everything is amplified and made much clearer for us. And we see how it all fits together in a way that we have not seen before. We're seeing it all laid bare and saying, okay, this is how all of this was connected and came together. And it's just really amazing. So for instance, at Elzoltz, uh the, the LiDAR found a 30-foot long fortification wall that had been missed by Garrison and his team, despite the fact that they had been excavating at the site for years. Maybe eventually we would have gotten to this hilltop where this fortress is, but I was within about 150 feet of it in 2010 and didn't see anything, he told Live Science. He also notes that the survey of the major Mayan city Tikal changes, quote, the base level at which we do Maya archaeology. I mean, we're talking about millions of people, conservatively, says Garrison, probably more than 10 million people in the new areas discovered by the LIDAR survey. And so more than 60,000 new structures were discovered, including five new cities. Among them are fortresses and systems of watchtowers that suggest that there may have been more widespread warfare than previously suspected. That wall at El Zatz suggests to Garrison that there was a quote-unquote investment in the landscape that suggests the need for defense is currently seeking funding to excavate that wall. Um, And they also note that the mapping has covered only a fraction of the empire once ruled by various Mayan city-states. It may be that there was a much more vast and impressive civilization there than previously ever dreamed about, all hiding beneath the jungle and forest that has overtaken the land. And... One of the really interesting things about all of this is that it suggests that the ancient Maya had advanced agricultural knowledge that allowed them to feed much larger populations than modern inhabitants of the region can sustain. Now, interesting, there's even a region of blankness, a place the Maya chose not to settle. While it's unlikely archaeologists will dig there, it may be interesting to biologists or agricultural scientists to see what features that region possesses that might have made it inhospitable to the Maya. Other interesting things include the fact that the Maya built extensive roadways, despite the fact that they did not use beasts of burden. Um, So if you remember horse, cattle, all of the things that we sort of think of as ubiquitous these days... None of those beasts of burdens are native to the Americas. The only thing that's native to the Americas are alpaca and um, vicuna, neither of which the Maya would have had much access to because they are more in uh, Southern America, um, in uh, the Peru and in the Andes. Um, And so it's just completely a mystery. They think that it might either have been for uh ceremonial processions or um they might have used them as um levees of some sort or causeways I should say. It's going to change our view of views of population and just on how the Maya lived on that landscape, notes David Stewart, the of Texas at Austin anthropologist, who has been following the study but was not involved. By having this more accurate picture of what is there, we can start to talk about community organization, agricultural systems, land use, roadways, and communication. So pretty much this is just magical and amazing, and everyone is super excited who is uh, even remotely involved in the study of uh, the ancient Maya. Um, And so I am also very excited uh, since I someone who really is interested in um, Mesoamerican uh, cultures. So I'm looking forward to uh, more of information that comes out of this because one of the things, of course, that this is allowing them to do is to locate uh, specific places in which they would like to do excavations to see what is there. Okay, so on the other side of the Atlantic, there has been uh, a bit of a stir caused by the revelation that the Cheddar Man, a 10,000-year-old skeleton of a Homo sapien found in England, uh, who also happens to be one of the oldest and most complete found in Europe, would mostly, most likely have had pale eyes but dark skin. His remains were discovered in 1903 in Goh's Cave, located in Cheddar Gorge, Somerset. The cave was a particularly used, well-used one. Skeletons from many humans and also the remains of older Cro-Magnon individuals have been found there. He is just one person, but also indicative of the population of Europe at the time. Tom Booth, a postdoctoral researcher in paleobiology, at the museum said in a statement, they had dark skin and most of them had pale colored eyes, either blue or green and dark brown hair. Um, and so recently, modelers at Kenneth and Kennis Reconstructions worked with Britain's Natural History Museum to sculpt the Mesolithic man's face, including a closed mouth smile and long dark hair. Uh, Cheddar Man would have been in his twenties uh, when he died, though the cause of his death is unknown. Uh, he did have a hole in his skull, but they're not sure if that was uh, perimortem or postmortem. Um, it could have been uh, an infection or some issue in that was uh, either caused his death or um, was a problem for him, or it could have honestly been uh, damage in the early 20th century when he was discovered. And so one of the unusual things about him, however, is that he was actually found alone. Mesolithic people generally buried their dead in communal graves. Unfortunately, they can't really tell much beyond that. He could have either been special and had his own place in which he was um, laid to rest, or he may have simply died while caught out, um, separated from the rest of his community. Due to certain mineral deposits and the coolness of the cave, his DNA was found to be intact enough that researchers were able to sequence fragments of it. And that's how they learned about um, the possibility of his skin tone and his eyes and other physical traits. And so the researchers suggest that pale skin did not develop until after the agricultural revolution. Pale skin is thought to have been an adaptation to more northern latitudes, where people are exposed to less sun and therefore can be in danger of not producing enough vitamin D. Um, and so, even though we think of that as having been uh, something very traditionally. Uh, associated with uh, northern climates and places like England. It looks like when people arrived in those northern uh, places, and it makes sense evolutionary, that they would have still been brown, um, much darker, and they would have slowly evolved that lighter skin as they lived in that those areas in which lighter skin would have been advantageous. Um, and so, yeah, very interesting let's move on now and talk about a favorite subject, Vikings. (laughs) So um, this is an interesting story because sometimes you have a tool that works really well most of the time, um, but there are certain conditions wherein uh, it just doesn't and you get data that just doesn't make sense. And what I like is that sometimes you can go back later on when you've developed better tests or different protocols and figure out what the heck happened previously and get you know, a better result. And so, this is a story about the wonders and limitations of radiocarbon dating. In the 1980s, archaeologists found an amazing gravesite. It was filled with more than 200 warriors from what they assumed was the Viking Great Army. But the researchers were confused when radiocarbon dating suggested that the remains were actually from hundreds of years before the Viking Age. Many of the bodies were buried with Scandinavian artifacts, and they were in the right historical region, Repton, a parish of Derbyshire. So historical records indicated that the Vikings spent the winter of 873 to 874 in Repton, from which they attacked the Anglo-Saxon king of of Mercia and sent him into exile. So it made sense that this represented members of that Viking horde. The remains were found at St. Weiston's Church in the 1980s. One room contained the remains of at least 264 people, of which, interestingly, 20% were women. Um, And so there has been much back and forth over the years about whether or not uh, women were representative of Viking warriors. Uh, At the moment, the uh, consensus tends to be that, yes, there were women who were Viking warriors. It might have been, uh, you know, a small percentage, but it does seem to be that there are women who were uh, considered warriors, who were buried as warriors and who most likely did um, participate in battles. Um, artifacts found at the site included an axe, several knives, and five silver pennies dating from between A.D. 872 uh, and 875. Now, most of the male skeletons were aged between 18 and 45, and several displayed signs of violent injury. All signs pointed to this being a grave full of Viking warriors from the Great Army. However, Although several samples were consistent with a 9th century date, a number dated to the 7th and 8th centuries AD, and thus seemed to belong to an earlier phase of activity, the researchers wrote in the original study. But with a fresh understanding of the limitations of radiocarbon dating, researchers now feel relatively confident that they are indeed from the Great Army. The previous radiocarbon dates from the site were all affected by something called marine reservoir effects, which is what made them seem too old, the study's lead researcher Kat Yarman, an archaeologist at the University of Bristol, said in a statement. When we eat fish or other marine foods, we incorporate carbon into our bones that is much older than in terrestrial foods. This confuses radiocarbon dates from archaeological bone material, and we need to correct for it by estimating how much seafood each individual ate. Yarman's team also dated a double grave at the site, one of the few found to contain Viking weapons in England, to 873 to 886 CE. The older of the two men had a Thor's hammer pendant and a Viking sword, among other articles. He also shows signs of having been in several fights, including having a large cut on one of his femurs. They also found four children aged 8 to 18 buried uh, in a grave with a sheep's jaw at their feet. Archaeologists suggest that they may have actually been sacrifices in keeping with rituals mentioned in certain Viking texts. The date of the Repton Carnal Bones is important because we know very little about the first Viking raiders that went on to become part of a considerable Scandinavian settlement of England, Jarman said. Although these new radiocarbon dates don't prove that these were Viking army members, it now seems very likely. And so... Again, it's one of those great things where you can go back and uh, definitively prove at least as much as you can ever definitively prove anything, as we always uh, couch our uh, statements with most likelies, uh, that this really is what you thought it was. And that is very cool. Okay, one more quick story um, that I've been meaning to get to just because I thought it was really interesting. Um, And so this is news from Africa. And it is evidence of the first evidence of sub Saharan glass making. So, researchers from Race University, University College London, and the Field Museum of Chicago have found the first direct evidence of glass production in sub Saharan Africa hundreds of years prior to the arrival of Europeans. Abidemi Babatunde Babalola a recent recipient of a PhD from Rice University and now a fellow at Harvard University, discovered the evidence of glassmaking at a site called Igbo Alokum Il Efe, located on the northern edge of southwestern Nigeria. He discovered a cache of more than 12,000 glass beads as well as a bunch of glassworking debris. This area has been recognized as a glass-working workshop for more than a century, Babalola said. The glass-encrusted containers and beads that have been uncovered there were viewed for many years as evidence that imported glass was remelted and reworked. However, that idea began to be challenged around 10 years ago, when evidence that some of the glass found had a very different chemical composition from imported glass that would have been available. However, they hadn't yet found any direct evidence of glassmaking. Analyzing 52 beads, the researchers found that they did not match the composition of any glass found in the Old World, including Asia. Instead, the beads featured a high-lime, high-alumina composition consistent with local geology and raw materials available in the area. The new evidence suggests that glassmaking was taking place in the 11th through 15th centuries, well before contact with Europeans. Babalola notes that such glass has been found at other West African sites, suggesting that it was widely traded. He hopes to learn more about local glass production and how it shaped Western Africa as compared to other parts of the world and how it impacted the social, political and economic dimensions of African society. So very cool. All right. That is all I have time for tonight. So I will be back next week with more science stuff uh, to talk about with you. So hang on for just a few moments and upcoming will be civil politics.